Let us come to God in prayer. Let us pray. Indeed, O Lord, have thine own way. In all the words that are said in this next wee while, Lord, have thine own way. Speak, O Lord, for your children are listening. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. <clears throat> I want to show you a few lines from films, and I wonder if you can guess where they featured. Here's looking at you, kid. Anybody want to guess? Jump. I can't hear you. Casablanca, there you go. If I asked you the year, it's 1942. Or, Houston, we have a problem. Apollo 13, now you're getting the idea. That's 1995. Or, ogres are like onions. Oh, who was it? Who was in there quickest? That was pretty quick. Shrek and Donkey, exactly. To get, to really get these lines, to grasp their meaning and significance, you need to know the backstory. You need to have watched the film. And whether it be a, a love story or a rescue mission or, oh, Neil, that's colors out, um, or a simple feel-good film with poignant truths, knowing the backstory, the context helps. And the same is true of the kingdom of God. Without knowing the backstory, it can be quite meaningless. We're now into week four of our new series on the kingdom of God, and the last three weeks we have begun to fill out some of that backstory. We saw that from the beginning of creation, the kingdom of God has been central to the biblical story. In Genesis 1 and 2, we saw the pattern of the kingdom with God's people, living in God's place under God's rule and enjoying God's blessing. In Genesis 3, we saw how the pattern of the kingdom was lost. For when Adam and Eve ate of the forbidden fruit, they were rejecting God's rule. And as a result, they were no longer counted as God's people, which led to them being expelled from God's place, the Garden of Eden. And consequently, they also lost God's blessing. But then last week with Ian, we read from later in Genesis, where in chapters 12, 15, and 17, God makes a covenant, a promise with Abraham to once again form a people of God who will be given a land, who will live under God's rule, and once again enjoy God's blessing. So, we're only up to Genesis chapter 17 by that point, and yet we're beginning to see a rich, full backstory to the kingdom of God. But from Genesis 17 to where we read in 2 Samuel, it took about 900 years for everything to pass. So, there's a lot of history, a lot of backstory between those two moments in the biblical story which you'll be glad to hear we're not going to cover in depth in this series. And yet to understand the kingdom of God, to understand how God seeks to restore the pattern of the kingdom, we need to know some of that history, that 900-year history, which I'll attempt to briefly do just now, including without PowerPoint. So broadly speaking, 
from Genesis 12 to Exodus 18, the focus is primarily on God's people, on how God would once again form a people who would be his special possession. And so we find God taking Abraham, and from that old man forming a family tree through whom a nation would come, through Isaac and Jacob and Jacob's 12 sons, including Joseph. And over the summer months, we looked at the story of Joseph and saw how God's promise began to be worked out through this great-grandson of Abraham, that he was used of God to save God's people from starvation by providing a home for them in Egypt. But after Joseph, hundreds of years pass, and the people of God grow to be very numerous, in fact, so numerous that we think it might be in the millions, yet they have become slaves to Egypt. And so they cry out to God, 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 and he hears them. And he takes Moses and uses him to rescue God's people and bring them out of Egypt through what we call the Exodus, that act of God by which the people of God are saved. And then God leads them by a pillar of cloud and fire to Mount Sinai, which we read about in Exodus chapter 19. And from Exodus chapter 19 to the end of the book of Leviticus, we now focus on God's rule and blessing. For in those chapters, we see how the people of God are to live, and also how a holy God can presence Himself amongst His imperfect people, and yet still have relationship. After Leviticus, if you want to find the index, this might help, the, we have the books of Numbers, Deuteronomy, and Joshua. And yes, they weren't written so that they chronologically follow, but while some of their content is similar, here we begin to see how the focus moves on to God's people, that the land which was promised to Abraham many years before. Now, the people of God at this point, at the beginning of Numbers, are still at Mount Sinai, but because of grumbling and protest and unbelief, the people of God are punished. And instead of a few months' journey to the promised land, they travel around the desert for 40 years so that all but two of that generation pass away, all who were filled with ingratitude and unbelief. But eventually they do reach the promised land, but under a new leader, under Joshua. And they enter the land of Canaan, taking possession of it and settling into a land that flowed with milk and honey. At the end of the book of Joshua, Joshua himself says to the people a warning, saying, just leave it, saying that they are a people who will never be able to maintain uh, what has been set out before them. They are likely to go wayward. And the question arises at that point, Will they or won't they? Has Joshua got this right? What will happen now to the people of God? We then enter the book of Judges, where there is a cycle of sin and grace. For the people of God keep turning away from the Lord, they keep doing evil in His eyes, and so they are punished by God. And they then cry out for mercy, and God sends a ruler, a judge, to lead them back under the rule of God enabling them to enjoy God's blessing and peace once more. 
And this cycle of sin and then grace keeps repeating again and again throughout the book until we read at the end of Judges these words. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. In these words, there is a hint of what the solution might be, that the people need a king. And that's not a new idea. It had been mentioned in Genesis 49. It was mentioned in Deuteronomy, where the king was to make a copy of the law, and he was to read it and follow it all the days of his life. And those words in Deuteronomy confirm that God's appointed king was to be the means by which the rule of God would come upon and through God's people. God would rule his kingdom through his king. And so we get to the end of Judges, and that idea is raised once more. It enables us to enter into the books of Ruth and 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, where we see how God raises up for himself a king to rule over his people. Can you guess who it was that eventually we get to? David. David, that famous shepherd boy, becomes king. His journey is one of suffering and rejection. He faces many struggles to reach a position of peace, of rest. And that's where we find ourselves in 2 Samuel 7. That is the, a rough summary of 900 years of God forming a people of probably 300-odd pages, if you were to read it of him forming a people, of giving them his law, his rule, of taking them to the promised land, of establishing a king through whom God's rule and blessing will come to God's people within God's place. And chapter 7 opens with these words in verses 1 to 3. After the king was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am, living in a house of cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. The king is at rest at last. But he recognizes it has come from God's hand, and yet the ark of God, the symbol of God's presence amongst his people, remains in a tent while the king lives in a house of expensive cedar. And so there's a burden upon David's heart to do something, which Nathan the prophet supports. But that night the Lord speaks to Nathan, relaying a message that is passed then on to David. And the Lord turns David's offer upon its head. For now he has promised to build a flesh and blood house for David, a lineage, a dynasty. We read of that in these verses from 8 to 11. Now then tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture and from tending the flock and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great like the great names of the greatest men on earth, and I will provide a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. 
Wicked people shall not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. Jumping on to verse 14, I will be his father and he shall be my son. In this passage, God refers to those covenant promises made to Abraham of a people, of a land, of blessing. But these are now tied to the king. And so Israel's future is identified with the king's future. And concerning this king, did you pick up what is said about this future king? He will be a descendant of David. His kingdom will be established by God. His future, and this future king will build a house for God. And this kingdom will reign forever. And this king will be a son of God. So a future king, one greater than David is to come. And through this king, God's kingdom will be established. His rule over his people, his place will become reality. And all will know and live in God's blessing. And just a few chapters later, with the coming of David's son Solomon, and then into the first, into first kings, we begin to see the glo a golden age for the kingdom of God, for Israel. And we're left asking, is Solomon this king? Is he the one who was promised? Is he the son of God? And if you read on into 1 Kings 11, you see that Solomon isn't. Because he's led astray from God. And he does evil in the eyes of the Lord. And despite the Lord's intervention, he doesn't turn from his way. And as such, it's not long before this partial rebuilding of the kingdom begins to disintegrate. And that was Israel's high point as a kingdom under a human king. And we still wait to see 2 Samuel 7 fulfilled. We still wait to see how God will restore what was lost through his king. This king who will be human, but will be a son of God such that the people of God live under the rule of God in God's place and enjoying God's blessing. Neil, can we see if this will jump up again? It's been a long story, a very long story. And we might be wondering, what might we glean from Genesis 12 to 1 Kings 11? For us? Or is Scott simply doing a history lesson today? Hopefully not. One of the most striking things about this period in the biblical story is how so many parts of it leave us hanging, leave us wanting more, and probably left the people of God wanting more. In the book of Leviticus, God laid down the means by which He, as a holy God, would continue to presence himself amongst the imperfect people. They are given instructions on how to build the tabernacle, that tent where the ark of God would dwell, symbolizing God's presence. And they're also given the sacrificial system. But there are limitations. Only one person, once a year, can go into the most holy place and be in the presence of the tabernacle. The, the Ark of the Covenant. There's a limitation of relationship. 
It's only a partial restoration of what there was in the Garden of Eden where the Lord walked amongst the cool of the day beside his people. And so a greater peace between God and humanity must come. The people of God are left wanting. In the books of Numbers to Judges, we see a limitation of obedience by God's people. We see God's people disobeying him left, right, and center. They have a hard heart towards God and his ways. And so there's only a partial restoration of God's people. Sure, they're there numerically, millions of them. But their hearts are still so often wayward. The people of God are left wanting. And in 1 Samuel to 1 Kings 11, we see a series of imperfect kings through whom only a partial restoration of God's rule and blessing comes about. And then only for a very short time in the reign of Solomon before quickly crumbling away. Once more, the people of God are left wanting and hopes are dashed. And I wonder if you can resonate with some of that lack, with some of that hunger for something greater, maybe of greater intimacy with God or greater obedience to God's ways or a greater king who offers true hope. These may not be the first things you think about when you think about what you lack. But if we're honest, all of us have to some degree discontentment, some degree of awareness that, that life is just not as it should be, that there's something lacking in our lives. And it may be you lack peace of soul. It may be that you, you have a frustration in your life. It could be in your relationships. It could be with your minister. It could be with age, infirmity, who knows? The list is, can be very long. It may be that you lack hope and encouragement amidst the greatest challenges of life. Friends, that discontentment, that hunger, that emptiness is a sign of our broken world and of our God-given sense that there is something more, something better of a kingdom that was lost. But that lack also highlights that our man-made solutions are insufficient. They don't truly meet our need. We try to anesthetize our lack of peace and contentment with stuff or with pleasure, with popularity, by seeking solutions in other places. Or similarly, we try to fix our broken relationships with guilt and nagging and manipulation and just trying to get our way. But the discontentment of our souls has at its root a deep spiritual need and problem. And no man-made solution can, can touch that. No mere human king, just as no mere human king, could be the solution to restoring God's kingdom. Just as the law, an external law, even given by God, could not change the heart of broken humanity. Just as no animal sacrifice, even set up by God, could truly cleanse the human conscience and restore full intimacy with God. The discontentment we feel, as the discontentment the people of old must have felt, is a pointer beyond ourselves and our solutions 
to something else, indeed to someone else. And that someone else, as we'll see in the weeks to come, is Jesus. For in him, as we read in Romans, we find a descendant of David, but also the Son of God. In Jesus, as the Apostle Paul outlines, we find someone who is the Christ, the promised King. And he has conquered death. And he rules in power as Lord. And he calls us and equips us with his grace to obedience, to live under the rule of God. And he calls us into relationship with himself, that we might be a people who belong to Jesus Christ. Friends, in the midst of our discontentment, God is calling, calling us into deeper relationship with Himself through His Son, Jesus Christ. And just as there was more for the people of God long ago, there is more for all of us. There can be greater peace. There can be greater contentment. There can be greater depth of intimacy with God. There can be greater hope for tomorrow. Friends, where do you feel that discontentment or lack? I can tell you a couple of mine. I know what they are. And too often, probably even last week, but too often over the course of my life, I look elsewhere. I take the wrong path. I make the wrong choice. I respond in the wrong way to try and meet that ache. What or how or who are you trying to meet that ache with? And if it's not Jesus, it just won't satisfy. Yesterday, I came across a new song at a conference I was at by a Scottish worship leader up in Aberdeen. And I'd like to play that for us. It's a video that will come up and the words will appear as well. Because I feel it sums up this issue, that we all have discontentment, we all have brokenness, and we need to come to Jesus with it. And so we'll play that just now, and don't just listen to the song and the words. In the gaps where there's just instruments, why don't you just close your eyes and take that discontentment that is in your heart and your soul and open it up quietly to God and, and just be real with Him about it. So Neil, if we could play that video. Friends, please, please go to Jesus. Please go to Him with your discontentment. Please don't do what I've done so often and, and go elsewhere. Please go to Jesus. Because today is more, meant to be more than just a history lesson. We need to hear the call of God to turn our eyes to our heavenly King so that in Jesus we see the one who can meet the deepest ache of our souls. For he is the one through whom the kingdom of God has come. To him be all glory now and forever. Amen.